and welcome to the much anticipated and very first episode of the Digging Up the Past podcast. Was it much anticipated though? I don't know. I did occasionally receive messages by email, but it it doesn't matter. Here we are, or at least here I am. My name is Petros Katupis, and I am your host. You may have heard of me if you are a current subscriber of uh, the Digging Up the Past newsletter or have caught up on my uh, historical and mythological research through various channels, which include ancient origins, classical wisdom, or even my personal website and more. So part of the reason why I did not create a podcast for Digging Up the Past sooner is primarily because I wasn't sure of the format. How did I want to do this? Well, I did come up with an idea. I will likely run two parallel series. One will be the main series, which will pretty much cover general historical topics such as the Trojan War, the rise and fall of Babylon, the Sea Peoples, and many more topics ranging from the Sumerians of 5,000 years ago to the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, The second series, however, will be a special purpose series and cover very specific topics, the first of which will be centered around biblical history, uh, where we will talk about authorship of the biblical books, the Exodus, which should be a really interesting one, uh, virgin births, the Messiah, and so much more. Either way, we are going to have fun here. Some episodes may be longer than others, and sometimes I may even get lucky enough to interview guests. Who knows? They may be authors discussing recently published historical and related books, archaeologists sharing their research or experience with the the general theme of that episode, or something else entirely different, like a discussion about the hottest archaeological discovery. Um, Some episodes may just be as simple as a follow-up discussion to the previous episode. Again, we're here to have fun. Anyway, in uh, today's inaugural episode, I want to talk about the oral tradition and authorship of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. So shall we grab a trowel and brush? At this point, who hasn't heard of Homer? When in school, we all learned that he is the author of both the Iliad and the Odyssey, or at least that is the traditional belief. But whether Homer was an actual person or persons or not, how did we get to this point? Hmm, where do we begin with this topic? I'd say we need to get into our uh, time machine and go back to the late Bronze Age period of the Eastern Mediterranean. That is about 3,500 years ago, uh, maybe a little less. The Mycenaean Greeks were in full control of Greece and the islands of the uh, Aegean Sea, with strong influences along the coasts of Anatolia, uh, that is, you know, Turkey today. They also had uh, influence in, uh, the, in Canaan and Egypt. Also, the Hittite Empire pretty much covers most of Anatolia. Canaanite city-states are scattered throughout, well, Canaan, and uh, Egypt is Egypt. We are talking about uh, the New Kingdom period in Egypt. That is King Tut, Ramses the Great, his son Merneptah. You know, the, the better documented and well-known pharaohs of Egypt. Sadly, though, the uh, archaeological record bears witness to the devastation that marked the end of the Middle Bronze Age. In the Near East, city after city fell to Egypt as they campaigned through Palestine and into Syria and until reaching the Euphrates River. Even when pitted against a coalition of Syrian and Canaanite nations in the fields of Megiddo, 
at approximately 1470 BCE or before the Common Era, uh, victorious, the Egyptians claimed undisputed control of Palestine and a great portion of the coastal and south-central regions of what is modern-day Syria. The Egyptian Asiatic Empire was officially created. Even though the Canaanite city-states were sub subjected to Egyptian rule and, and taxation, this new era of transi and transition to the late Bronze Age marked the beginning of a prosperous time in what would later be looked back on as a golden age. I already mentioned the Mycenaean Greeks and the Hittites. Their influence and control over their respective regions grew during this time, and they ended up becoming major players in the region. Uh, more specifically, and as it relates to the Mycenaeans, you know, because they are the, the peoples we are most concerned with here, their craftsmanship, oils, wool, among other exports spread across the entire Mediterranean. On a darker side, though, they also dealt with slaves. We are talking about trading human beings, you know, human trafficking. That is, they would abduct both men and women, sometimes prisoners of war from the nearby islands and coasts, and then they just sold them off. And then one day, this prosperous period and the late Bronze Age came to an end. It was around 1200 BCE. How it happened is still a mystery. Was it defined by a singular event or multiple, which over time and like a domino effect brought the entire Eastern Mediterranean to its knees? We still don't know, but it is my opinion that the best research today can be found in Dr. Eric Klein's book, 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. So what happened? These nations fell into a dark age. The Hittites disappeared. So did the Mycenaeans. We are talking about political reforms, the elite caste taken down, cities being burned to the ground. A lot of it came from within. The Canaanite city-states dealt with their fair share of issues, and, well, Egypt barely clung on. In Greece, writing was lost, and so was contact, as far as we know, with the outside world. This dark age lasted a couple hundred years, well, even longer in Greece. Some nations recovered faster than others, but from the ashes of the, of the old arose new nations. This, this marked the beginning of the Iron Age. You know, we are talking about the Greeks of the Archaic period, uh, the Neo-Hittite city-states, uh, the Phoenicians, the Israelites, you know, it, it, and so many more. The Greek Dark Age essentially ended during the uh, 8th century BCE, and they reemerged on the stage of history once again, expanding their influence not only in the east across the Mediterranean, but also west and in Italy. Uh, most notably, writing was rediscovered in Greece, although they, they did adopt and adapt the Phoenician alphabet. It is also around this time that we also start to see early traces of uh, the Homeric epics, you know, the ones that we're concerned with here. But I don't want to get too far ahead in, in our adventure, at least not yet. There are so many gaps that still need to be filled. Her face was the face that launched a thousand ships. She was considered to be the most beautiful woman in the world, or at least that's how the epic goes. Helen was seduced by the Trojan prince Paris, also known as Alexander or Alexandros. And uh, she traveled back with him to, to his homeland of, uh, of Troy. 
Helen left her Spartan homeland and her husband, Menelaus. Menelaus was not happy with this situation. I mean, not one bit. He convinces his brother Agamemnon to set sail for Troy and to retrieve his wife. A war ensued lasting for 10 years. Well, that is, that is how the Trojan cycle depicts these, uh, these events. But was, was any of it true? Uh, was a war waged between two power nations over, over a woman? Or an even better question, was there even a Trojan war? I will spare the listener from all the details that preceded it, but in the late 19th century, a wealthy entrepreneur turned amateur archaeologist named Heinrich Schliemann made the announcement of the history. Well, he made two major announcements. He discovered Troy in uh, northwestern Turkey, and uh, he also discovered the citadel of Mycenae in the northeastern region of the Peloponnese in Greece. His methods of excavation were quite unorthodox and disastrous. And today we are still trying to make the best out of a crappy situation. Uh, that is sorting through the mess Schliemann made in his attempt to find uh, Priam's Troy and the, the, the Troy layer of the Trojan War. Anyway, uh, what was discovered was the complex, multi-layered city that had existed from as early as the early Bronze Age. It would eventually be abandoned during the Iron Age. Each layer met its end in some form or another, you know, be it earthquake or war, uh, giving way to resettlement and new construction. However, uh, there was one layer that stood out from the others, and that was Troy Level 7A. It was destroyed somewhere between 1190 to 1180 BCE. Uh, this level of Troy was not as grand as the Troy described by Homer, but it did fall to war with evidence of widespread burning. There is evidence of a siege. Uh, also, archaeologists have found Aegean-style arrowheads and other military paraphernalia within uh, the destruction layer. Here's the thing, though. It remains unclear as to whether the adversaries of Troy 7A were Mycenaean Greeks or just another group of Aegean peoples. Coincidentally, uh, during this time, there was a wave of sea peoples migrating from the west and to the east, uh, in some cases, destroying cities along the way. I don't want to spend much time talking about the sea peoples uh, in this episode, as it really does deserve its, its very own episode. So uh, where were we? Uh, oh, yeah, uh, not much was known about the uh, ancient, the general Aegean during this uh, period until scholars translated the uh, the Hittite language in the 20th century. One of the oldest known Indo-European languages to date, and to the east of Troy ruled the Hittite Empire, uh, centered at the capital uh, Hattusa. Uh, discovered within the ruins of their citadel were piles and piles of baked tablets containing this uh, cuneiform script. In these tablets, we find activities and negotiations between two world powers, that is the, uh, the Hittites and the Akiawa. It didn't take long for scholars to connect these dots. The Akiawa were one and the same as Homer's Achaeans, that is, the Mycenaean Greeks. From the 15th century to as late as the 12th century BCE, the Mycenaeans were involved in all sorts of activities along the western uh, Anatolian coast, both for 
and in opposition to the Hittite Empire, uh, some of which involved uh, the, the Hittite vassal of uh, Vilusa. Again, it didn't take long to connect the dots on, on this one either. Vilusa was Ilios, the Greek name for the, the city of Troy, and also the same name of the book, the, the epic, the Iliad. Uh, these tablets uh, illuminated a whole cast of characters, which are, are later reflected in the Homeric epic. We read names such as Atreus, Alexandros, remember, that's, that's another name for Paris, and even a rendering of Priam. Now we have some sort of proof of Greeks being on the Anatolian soil, but was it enough to say that a Trojan War happened? No, it wasn't. Even though Troy level 7a fits into the Homeric timeline, we still did not have the evidence to say it was these Achiabwa that burned the, the city to the ground. And even when we date these, uh, these same tablets, they date to the period before Troy 7a, Troy level, level 6, which you know archaeologists believe ended by an act for Mother Nature uh, that is an earthquake. Now, let us take a step back for a minute or two and spend a, a bit more time discussing the Mycenaeans. As I mentioned not too long ago, the Akiawa played a significant role along the, the western coast of Anatolia. Even though the region was still considered to be under the dominion of the Hittites, if, if not directly, at least indirectly through, through treaties and arrangements, now, why were they there in the first place? We don't really know, but can only assume it was primarily for commercial gain. You know, greed it is what drives most nations to expand beyond their traditional borders. In fact, from uh, the Mycenaean tablets discovered at Pylos in, uh, in, in the Greek mainland, we know that a large number of slaves were captured from the Anatolian coast. Some were taken back to Greece, while others were sold across the Aegean. The idea that the Mycenaeans developed this, this uh, wide network of trafficking slaves does not seem far-fetched either. In uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer tells about women being made slaves, either as a, as a prize or taken as, as booty of war. Uh, the men were either killed on the battlefield or, or ransomed. The Hittite tablets, again, tell us of Hittite and Mycenaean engagement. In some texts, the Achaean king is harboring a Hittite fugitive. In others, the Mycenaean king is supplying aid to an anti-Hittite coalition. Uh, some discuss the city of Troy, you know, that, that is Velusa. Uh, yes, the, the Greeks were instigators. But these texts and events are, are separated by time. They did not come from a single war, but instead multiple little skirmishes or events across a stretch of a couple hundred years or so. And what about Homer's reason for the, for the war? Helen, remember the, the face that launched a, a thousand ships. Maybe there's some historical truth to this. And, and I mean a hard maybe. A uh, Hittite document labeled CTH-183 and dating sometime to the early 13th century BCE. It contains a letter sent by the Mycenaean king to the, the Hittite king. It is a bit damaged and uh, it makes it difficult to read in its entirety. But what we do see is that 
A century earlier, the Hittite king's grandfather had given specific Asua lands in, in Western Anatolia to the then Mycenaean king as part of a, a diplomatic marriage to, the, to an Asuan princess. It was a dowry. By the time of this letter, the lands were now being contested for, and the Mycenaean uh, monarch was not happy at all. Could this have uh, inspired the backstory to the Trojan War? Was this Asuan princess a prototype for Homer's Helen? Well, you know, we, we probably will never know. Uh, what we do know, however, is that we do find here some evidence or a possible motivation for the Mycenaean-Greek conflicts on the Anatolian mainland. Here's the thing, though. If you add all the evidence together, you get a uh, Trojan War-like uh, story, but not a singular narrative. Uh, that was the role of the bard, which, which we will get to next. Now, after the, uh, the, the Greek Dark Age and during the Iron Age, writing had to be rediscovered. But what was it like before, and more specifically, during the late Bronze Age when the Mycenaeans ruled the Aegean? The Mycenaeans relied on a script we refer to as uh, Linear B. It was an adaptation from the Minoan Linear A. The Minoans dominated the region before the Mycenaeans took over. Anyway, uh, Linear B is made up of hundreds of signs that represented syllabic, ideographic, and semantic values. But the best part of Linear B is that it has been deciphered. And we know that it is a very early form of the Greek language. Uh, the problem with Linear B, though, is that the script seems to have been uh, confined and limited only to administrative context and, and, and likely used solely by the, the elite class. Uh, also, the majority of the texts discovered come from the ruins of the, the palace centers burnt down at, during the end of the late Bronze Age. It is because of that that the clay was baked and the writing was preserved for us uh, to discover over 3,000 years later. The reason why I mention this is, is to point out how the majority of texts we have to decipher come from the tail end of the Mycenaean civilization. That is a very small window into their daily lives, which is, which is quite unfortunate. We know very little about the culture and the religion and quite literally have to rely on, on the uh, archaeology to fill in the gaps. You know, that, that being said, the uh, Linear B tablets did not preserve any of these almost Trojan War-like events. We have, we've got nothing. We only have whatever the Hittite tablets uh, contain. Uh, so then, what were the earliest copies of the, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, you may ask? That is a tough question to answer. The, the versions we read today, uh, or I should say the version, um, singular, we read today dates back to the, the medieval ages. But archaeologists have unearthed fragments and whole pages from, from both books and more at a little-known ancient Greco-Roman colony site in Egypt called, and, and bear with me on this, on this pronunci pronunciation, Oxyrhynchus. The spelling is crazy. The oldest of which date back to the, the third century BCE. Uh, the amazing part, though, is that the orth that orthography aside, I'm, I'm talking about spelling here, uh, these ancient copies are pretty consistent with, with what we have today. And the earliest known evidence 
of these poems being put that, uh, to written form and canonized into the collection we refer to as the Iliad and Odyssey. Uh, it traces back to between 546 and 527 BCE. In a statement made by the first century BCE Roman scholar Cicero, and, and sort of confirmed by Socrates, it was the Athenian tyrant Pesistratos who established a commission of editors of uh, Homer to edit the text of the poems and remove any errors and interpolations, which uh, essentially canonized the text specifically to be recited at the uh, at Athens, you know, during their annual uh, Penathenaic uh, festival. <laughs> but I know what you're thinking. Wait, what? Errors? Interpolations? I mean, hmm, what's what's going on here? Even by the time of Josephus, though, our favorite first century AD Roman Jewish uh, historian understood that Homer should not get credit for, for putting these epic tales into written form. He states, his date, you know, that, that that is Homer, however, is clearly later than the Trojan War. And even he, they say, did not leave his poems in writing. At first transmitted by memory, the scattered songs were not unified until later, to which circumstance and numerous inconsistencies of the work are attributable. Now, before we continue down this path, let us take yet another step back to understand Homer. Yes, the tradition has it that he, quote, authored, unquote, these two epic tales. But scholars still do not know if he actually existed. Uh, tradition also states that he was blind, but that is only based on the description of the blind bard Demodocus found in uh, Book 8, verse 64 of the Odyssey. Whether it was Homer or not, uh, what we do know is that these tales were preserved by traveling bards who, who sang these verses, uh, most likely to the tune of a lyre. It was through poetic verse and, and the use of repetition that the poet was able to maintain an, uh, an almost consistent and fluid narrative in, in every performance. Also, uh, the oral composition of the Iliad and Odyssey would have predated the existence of Homer. It preserves themes and events that he would not have been privy to, uh, some of which date hundreds of years before his time and, and well, into the late Bronze Age. It could have been passed down from generation to generation until we arrived to Homer around the 8th, possibly 7th century BCE. I want to revisit the whole errors and inconsistencies bit we touched on moments ago. Do we today have evidence for this? And I want to say yes. In fact, we, we sort of do. One of the more well-known variants comes to us uh, via the the black and red figure are painted and uh, preserved on uh, ancient Greek vases. The one that comes to mind is the Francois vase. It is um, an Athenian painted vase by, by the ancient artist Claetius around 575 BCE. And it depicts the funeral games of Patroclus. Of the five charioteers named, only Diomedes coincides with the version of the Iliad we read today. Another inconsistency is um, surrounding Circe, the, the witch from the, from the Odyssey. Homer places her home in the east, while Hesiod, who dates to around the same time as, as Homer, places her home uh, in the west and, and makes her somewhat of an ancestor to the ancient Italians. 
There is also evidence for further refinement and standardization of the text taking place in Alexandria, Egypt, around uh, the third and second centuries BCE. You know, we're talking about the infamous and now lost library of Alexandria. And the names include Zenodotus, Aristophanes of Byzantium, and Aristarchus. Now, what does this all tell us? During the Greek Dark Age and after, the oral traditions of these epics continuously evolved, eventually giving us the final form we enjoy today. But before canonization, they filled the imagination of its intended audiences. Enough so that many of its scenes were depicted in various forms of art, ranging from vases, which include the, the Mykonos vase. And that vase contains the earliest depiction of the, the Trojan horse and dates to around 675 BCE. We also find scenes on sarcophagi, on the, on the island of Cyprus, to even drinking vessels like the Cup of Nestor. Uh, to quote... Harvard classicist uh, Gregory Nagy from, from an article published in, in an older issue of Archaeology Odyssey magazine. In general, we don't find that historical facts are the kernel of myth, but that myth organizes historical facts. With each telling, the bard reciting these tales, inspired and guided by the muses, would allow various elements of these stories to evolve allowing the now-gone era to sound that much more fascinating. Remember, the role of the bard was to entertain. And now we have come to the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I plan to bring you many more just like it, if not better. Now, if you've got something to say, let us know. Be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me, if you can spell it, at petros at petroskatupis.com. This is Petros Katupis signing off.